Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. Welcome everybody, welcome back to the Dharma Doors. I'm MC Owens. Uh, tonight, I'm, I'm excited, I've already shared with everybody, I'm very excited about tonight. I've made a huge Dharma discovery that I'm here to share with everybody. Um, it is coming on the heels of and is part of our Saguna Deva Sutra. That's a sutra we've been talking about all month. It's from this collection, Treasury of Mahayana Sutras, which is a partial translation of the Ratnakuta Sutra. The Heap of Jewels, uh, which, I, as I've said before, is a collection of a bunch of sutras, and we're reading, I believe this is actually the 35th sutra in the collection, 35th, although it's number two, I think, in this book, they changed the order around. Tonight, we're honing in on the, the critical message of the sutra, of the, of the sutra that we've been talking about. I'm not going to talk about anything we've talked about up until this point, so refer to class one, two, and three for the setting, for the players, for the ideas. Um, we are just going to focus on sort of the end of the sutra that deals with this idea that I've drawn on the board every night, all month, and didn't get to, but I like to be ready, so I put it up there just in case we get that far along and we, didn't, we never got that far. So tonight's the night that we're going to talk about the five skandhas in relationship to emptiness, our sutra here. But before we do that, so that we can appreciate this beautiful Dharma discovery I've made, um, we need to talk about a few other sutras. I have all these sutras up here that I'm going to be referring to. So I mentioned this sort of early on in the class on our, the sutra that we're talking about, where they're talking about emptiness. They're sort of focusing on the three kleshas, the three defilements, and talking about how within emptiness, within the realm of emptiness, there actually are no kleshas. The, kle- the nature of the kleshas is emptiness. The nature of the self is emptiness. The nature of everything is emptiness, right? That's sort of the nature of the sutra. And for many Dharma students that have been hearing the story of the Bodhisattva Manjushri, talking to the Buddha and all of that, you might have noticed some recurring themes that sound very familiar to the Heart Sutra. So we have a Bodhisattva here at Manjushri telling us all about emptiness, telling us about how everything is empty, and then turning to a monk... (laughs) In this case, Shibuti saying, hey, monk, did you know everything is empty and all of that? And they talk about how within this realm of emptiness, things neither increase nor decrease. They're neither defiled nor pure. That's all from the Heart Sutra. So the Heart Sutra is about a bodhisattva practicing emptiness who turns to a monk and says, hey, monk, everything's empty. For the four noble truths are empty. The six uh, sense bases are everything's empty. Right, And we'll, we'll get there tonight, because I am going to finish this sutra tonight. But what's also interesting is that this sutra also ends with a mantra. It's not gate gate paragate parasam gate bodhisvaha, but 
what I'm getting at is that the structure of this sutra and the structure of the Heart Sutra are identical, and it gives us more clues into what, what do they mean by the Heart Sutra. It's the heart of this teaching on emptiness, but what, as we go through this sutra and many more to come, you will begin to notice, whoa, that heart sutra really is. All of these sutras boil down to not only the message, this profound message of emptiness, but also the literary structure. Bodhisattva practices emptiness, turns to a monk, da-da-da, then recite a mantra. Okay, so there's one way in which this is sort of a, a longer version of the Heart Sutra, or again, put it a different way. Maybe this is a sutra that the Heart Sutra is a, a summary of, because it's very similar. It's like this is like the unabridged version, if you will, right? But now I want to introduce you to Another sutra, this is our famous Diamond Sutra, or I like to translate it properly as the Vajra Sutra, right? And so this Vajra Sutra, also discourse on emptiness, also um, a lot of the same ideas, but the Diamond Sutra, or the Vajra Sutra, has no bodhisattvas, but they are talking about bodhisattvas. And interestingly, it's the same monk in the Diamond Sutra, the Vajra Sutra, it's the same monk as in our Sugunadeva Sutra, it's Subhuti. So very interesting, parallels, right? But there's one big parallel that I want to draw our attention to for our big Dharma discovery tonight. Of the famous last chapter of the Vajra Sutra. And not only the famous last chapter, 32nd chapter of the Vajra Sutra, but the very last little gatha, little poem in the last chapter of the Diamond Sutra is the famous poem that reads, all conditioned dharmas are like a dream, an illusion, a bubble, a shadow, like dew and like lightning, thus they should be perceived. And that's pretty much the end of the sutra. And it's this famous line of this sutra that all conditioned dharmas, which means all phenomenal existence, anything you can see, hear, taste, touch, smell, or even think of, all phenomenal existence. For a bodhisattva, because this sutra is about bodhisattva training, so for the bodhisattva, the bodhisattva should train their mind to see all conditioned things, all conditioned phenomena, all conditional Phenomena as being like a dream or an illusion, a bubble, a shadow, like dew and like lightning. Again, this is a famous line, commentary upon commentary upon commentary have been written about what it means. I wanted to just remind us all, because I've done the Diamond Sutra, I've done the Heart Sutra, I've done all these sutras, so I just wanted to remind us all of those parallels so that in our sutra, where we're at, in our Sugunadeva Sutra, in this back and forth with the monk Subhuti, with the Bodhisattva of Wisdom, Manjushri, where we are, picking up from last week, the monk Subhuti asks Manjushri, Manjushri, 
please tell me how to transcend the mundane world? That's the question. Subhuti says, how do I transcend the mundane world? Nor really a, a, a very Buddhist question to ask. Here's Manjushri's answer, which is, of course, after everything we've talked about. But here's his answer. Manjushri said, the five skandhas, the five aggregates, constitute what we call the mundane world. Of these, the aggregate, the skandha form, has the nature of accumulated foam. The skandha, or the aggregate of feeling, sensations, has the nature of a bubble. The aggregate of samya, perception, has the nature of a mirage. The aggregate, or skandha, of conditioning has the nature of a hollow plantain. (laughs) And the skandha, the aggregate of Consciousness has the nature of an illusion. Thus, one should know that the essential essential nature of the mundane world is none other than that of foam, bubbles, mirages, plantains, and illusions. In it, there are neither aggregates nor the names of the aggregates, neither sentient beings nor the names of sentient beings, neither the mundane world nor the supermundane world. Such a right understanding of the five skandhas is called the supreme understanding. If one attains this supreme understanding, then she is liberated. And she actually always has been. If she is so liberated, she is not attached to the mundane to mundane things, and if she is not attached to mundane things, she transcends the mundane world. Alright? So I'm gonna hold off and go any further. Sound a little familiar? Though? Yeah. So very quickly, because this will not nearly be as exciting if we don't understand what the five skandhas are. And so since there's a few new faces in the room and it's always, always helpful to go over this, I'm going to very quickly, I'm talking like five, min, ten minutes, <laughs> ten minutes, I'm going to run through the skandha thing real quickly so that when we start talking about foam and bubbles and plantains, we'll have a, a better sense of what's going on. So this idea, of course, of the aggregates in in uh, Sanskrit, the skandhas, uh, khandas, I believe, something like that in Pali, but this idea of the five elements of the self. So here we have our, our person, kind of cartoon person here. And of course, the basic idea of Buddhism is that we have the sense of a self <laughs> with a name, a, a history of my life, a sense of who I am, all of that, a sense of self. And it's a very tricky, stubborn thing, that sense of self has this interesting illusion of, of uh, singularity, as if I'm just one thing or one person and all of that. And again, without going through the whole Dharma talk, what makes Buddhism Buddhism is that it sort of rests on this doctrine of what's called no Atman, an Atman, 
no self, no singularity, no one being, even though there is this Michael label for all of this that is just a convention, a convenient uh, uh, name. And so Buddhism talks about this idea of actually there's no self. And instead, what this is, a being, a sentient being going around with sensory organs and all of that, is a momentary coalescence of these five things. Form, sensations, perception, conditioning, and consciousness. I've given you the Sanskrit words there in case I use them. I'm going to start where everybody starts, which is the first one, rupa or form. And this is very interesting. I just want to repeat this because um, I haven't repeated it lately. This element of form, rupa, it's an interesting idea because what this first idea of form is, it, rupa, it means like shape, right? Form. And so while even myself, uh, I, uh, this often gets translated, again, even by me, as like material matter. And it's kind of what they're referring to is like physical form. But I want you to know, though, that this, this form is about shape. And just as my cartoon here, how do you know that those are the, quote, eyes? Don't they have the, the form or the shape of the eyes? And doesn't that have the form or the shape of a nose? Doesn't this have the form or the shape of a nose? Right? So the idea is, is that how do we know kind of what things are in a way? Well, based on their form. Because <laughs> like a banana does not look like an apple. And right there, just with these simple gestures, I'm showing, oh, that's the difference between a banana and an apple? <laughs> is in its form, right? So that's very su the very subtle idea here. And right, so right here, I've drawn my cartoon bowl, right? And here is the sound, the smell, the taste, the tactility, all of the sensory input of the bowl coming off of it, right? And before we get into the role of the three poisons in this, I just want you to know that in the same way that I know that that's a bowl because it has the shape of a bowl, right? The sound of something is also a formation, right? And I know it's a little subtle, but, you know, in, in science, they speak of waveforms and the wave formation, whether it's like this or whether it's like this, the wave formation is then how we know, oh, that's a siren. Oh, that's a dog barking. So it has a particular form. And so the idea is, is that for all of our sensory organs, that the organs are understood as based on their form and the objects are based on their form. So this form, this first element, is not only the first element of a being, of the self, but it's also the element of like physical reality in that sense. So the objects I'm perceiving and then the perceptive organs are both made of, understood by, Form. So that's the first one. Everybody good on form? When form, 
whether it's uh, uh, light hitting the eyeball or sound waves hitting the ear or little formations of olfactory molecular structures hitting the palates in the inside of my nose or hitting the tongue or whatever, when form meets form, and in particular these um, fancy, fancy form, right? Like fancy sensitive form. Well, when fancy sensitive form, i.e., organs, sense organs, come into contact with other form, there's like this rubbing together that happens and it produces a sensation. And in Buddhism, they speak of these sensations as either being negative, positive, or neutral. And I want you to understand, too, that this is cumulative in a sense. And so these sensations are very, very autonomic reactions to things happening on all six sensory organs. So the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the brain as an organ are all coming into contact like, oh, I'm seeing all this stuff and I'm hearing all this stuff and I'm smelling all this stuff and I'm tasting all this stuff and I'm feeling all this stuff and I'm thinking all this stuff. And all of that is causing either negative, positive, or neutral reactions in me, right? And the idea is that even on a cellular level, everything is moving towards comfort, <laughs> has its own aversion and likes and dislikes. And so I'm this kind of giant ball of sensations that is through my unique history, or I should say the unique history of this formation, has negative and positive and neutral reactions that are unique to it, that are different than Matt's and different than everybody else's because they've gone through different processes and developed different negative, positive, neutral reactions. So rather than one singular self or a soul or an essence or anything like that, Buddhism says, no, no self, shape, form, organs, having negative and positive reactions to what it's receiving. And then there is this perception element. And I've described perception as just that, as the way of perceiving the world. So I'm form, there's form. For the, the sound of a form comes in through the, however that happens, it comes in, right? And I go like, wow, I don't like that. What is that? And then my perception goes, oh, it's a high pitch, it's moving, Doppler effect, Doppler effect. I've heard that, oh, it's a siren. And I don't like sirens. I don't like what associated with them. They're loud, all of that. So the perception is actually deducing what it is I'm having an experience of. And it, from a Buddhist point of view, it's, it's helpful to see that these sensations come before the deduction of what it is. Right? This is part of the, the ignorance or delusion problem is that we react to things first and then they're like, wait, what was that? So that's perception. And then once enough sirens have gone by or enough light has hit my eyes or whatever it is, I start to build up conditioned responses to things. So now it's not just that the siren has gone by and the loud, high-pitched sound has hit my ear and I've had a negative reaction. I've been like, what's that? And deduce that it's an ambulance now, my, what my conditioning or samskara is, is that I compare that siren to all sirens I've ever heard before, 
and filter it through my entire past. Everybody with me on that? So it's my condition, my emotional conditioned response based on my past experiences of what I'm perceiving now based on these sensations that are coming to me through my bodily organs of form. What we think of as consciousness, the like, hey, did anybody hear that siren? (laughs) That conscious like, did anybody else hear that? Is all built on my conditioning, my conditioned responses to things that are built on my perception of what those things were to begin with, which come from these sensations, which all ultimately arise from form hitting form. Ten minutes on the dot. Everybody good? Okay. So now what's really interesting and magical about Manjushri's discourse here is that he says to Subhuti, well, these five aggregates, that's what constitute the mundane world. Yeah, that's what the Buddha told us. Yes, that's how it works. Of these, he says, the aggregate of form has the nature of accumulated foam. The aggregate of sensations has the nature of a bubble. The aggregate of perception has the nature of a mirage. The aggregate of conditioning has the nature of a hollow plantain. And the aggregate of consciousness has the nature of an illusion. All right? So this is Manjushri, Bodhisattva of Wisdom, saying to Shibuti, here is a hyper-enlightened Buddha mind way of understanding these five skandhas. Right. Questions before I go on? Everybody good with this? Okay, so here's the Dharma discovery. I'm gonna, we're going to dive into it uh, real quick because I would like to read the end of the sutra because it gets really fun. So the plantain. That's how this started. It was like, what's up with the plantain? Anybody curious about the plantain, the hollow plantain, right? So I, of course, did what all good scholars do and said, plantain, let's dig through the whole Pali canon and find out what this plantain is about. Like, what is this reference? Because it's just said, right? So here we are. If you didn't know, we're in the Samyutta Nikaya. The connected discourses of the Buddha. This is the Pali Canon. These are the old teachings. And in particular, when you get into the Samyutta Nikaya, they're the oldest. Even though this is the third of the Nikayas, it's still the stuff in here is like the oldest stuff. All right? And I discovered this lovely little sutra that's in um, this collection is grouped by the subject. And this is the section around to there. This is the section on the skandhas. These are all little sutras that are about the skandhas. And I discovered this funny little one called a lump of foam. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Ayodhya on the bank of the Ganges River. There, the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus thus. Bhikkhus. Suppose that this river Ganges was carrying along it a great lump of foam. A man with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it, and it would appear to him to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be 
in a lump of foam. So two bhikkhus, whatever kind of form there is, whether form in the past, form in the future, or present form, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a bhikkhu inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it, and it would appear to him to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in form? So, one of, you know, there's obviously, the, this is tricky, but um, draw our little phone, right? Everybody done the dishes recently? <laughs> right? Anybody play with the foam, right? So what, anybody picking up what the Buddha's putting down here in terms of the nature of foam as being related to form, right? I yep. mean, I think what comes up to my mind when I think about foam is it has this kind of the same quality than water and air and fog. So the underlying exist, um, uh, ultimate um, essence of it is all the same. Even when you go through it, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Yes. Yep. Yep. That is the, that's the idea, right? So it's interesting here that the, the, the choice of term is a lump of foam, right? So if you really think about that, if you had the foam, you're doing the dishes and you got some foam, right? The idea, of course, is that there's no there there. Which, which is the essential part of the foam? There's not, Right? You pass your hand right through it, and it's actually a bunch of little bubbles, and we'll get to the bubbles in a second, but it's a bunch of little er things clumped together, right? I've said this in the past, early, early Buddhism is very modern because it's very atomistic, atomistic. The Buddha was way ahead of the science game in seeing everything is breaking down to smaller and smaller particles, Everything, even your precious quarks, further, 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 right? And so what you can start to do is, is you see, oh, if I'm talking about this, the, the, the subject here, right? <clears throat> if I think I have an Atman, if I think I'm myself, I think there's a there there. If I'm, the nature of my form is of foam, the idea is it's all like Legos, Atomic particles, whatever it is, fit together. And like foam, there's no there there. There's no core. There's no heart or essence to a lump of foam. Everybody with me on that? All right. Well, suppose bhikkhus, that in the autumn, when it is raining and big raindrops are falling, a water bubble arises and bursts on the surface of the water. A man with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it. And it would appear to him to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a water bubble? So too bhikkhus, whatever kind of sensations there are, whether past sensations, future sensations, or present sensations, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near. 
A bhikkhu inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it, and it would appear to him to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a sensation? All right, so now here's our second one. Right, so the form of sensation has the nature of a bubble. Thoughts on the bubble? As, like, I was, ever since we were talking about foam, and I was watching a video earlier this week about this huge foam that flooded a city in Spain. Mm. It was just foam. And the foam literally flooded the street. Quite a weird thing to, to look at. But I also remember when I was a kid and played, playing with foam, like, yeah, if you play with it with your hands, it eventually dissolves into nothing. Even if you try to grab a bubble, mm -hmm. it, it bobs and you don't even get any content. You don't... <laughs> it's gone. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think it's still kind of, for me, it's important, like, you know, thinking about emptiness and, you know, if there's no substantial nature and no permanent nature, it's it's it still comes to in, into appearance. So it's, you know, we often can, when we think about emptiness, that there's nothing, right? But it's still, even though it's not permanent, it still appears. So mm -hmm. I think, yeah. Remember, remember emptiness is, 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 it's not nothingness. It's far more, in a way, subtler than nothingness in that regard. And I like the, not that I like the foam... <laughs> Uh, take covering a city, but that speaks to even though it might just be foam, it can still be substantial with force. I might just be foam. I could be substantial with force. So we're we're it's we're not talking about, you know, we're talking about sort of how we understand this world, and in particular in regards to what's being spoken about right now, it's this idea of a, a lump of foam, and just because I can give oh, Michael lump. Just because my mind can, can put a box around it, a discriminative, demarcating box, and say, you're something, the foam reveals, no, I'm not, right? And so now this, this bubble, you got something to know? Yeah. Well, just, I mean, it doesn't always turn out to be the case, but some people would say that foam is a collection of bubbles. All the more. It doesn't matter. I, but the idea is, is that it's especially because I'm about to talk about the bubble. So even if foam is a bunch of bubbles, hold on to your bubbles, right? Yeah, no, the point I was going for is that that would make a connection in a certain way because then the material nature of things, the rupa, right? And if it's foam and sensation is bubble, then what is really rupa is a bunch of sensations touching. Don't mix your metaphors. Yeah, it gets tricky because, and I just wanted to point out that the foam... You know, for, for me, what I see going on in there is that it's talking about there not being any there there, right? That if you really start to investigate it like you were a doctor and you were like, well, let's get to the bottom of this foam and start you know, performing surgery on the foam to find out where its heart is or where its essence is, you, would be, you wouldn't find it. There's no there there, right? Sensations being like a bubble, though, and in, in particular, the, the bubble that bursts, right? 
sensations being fleeting, meaning that when I am having it, it is there. But the moment the sensory is, is removed, gone. Right? Just like that. You know, another example um, is the fist, right? Everybody ready to have your mind blown? Where'd the fist go? Where did it go? Right? Well, it popped just like a bubble, meaning that the, the conditional elements that were necessary for its existence are no longer present. The, the conditions necessary for my fist to exist are present, are present. And behold, the fist. Where'd the fist go? Right? So the bubble is this idea that when I'm having any sensation, it is fleeting. And then the moment the bubble pops, I'm not having that sensation anymore. So this is sort of like our classic uh, Anicca impermanence kind of idea. But just, you know, just put all of these in your mind. Foam, bubbles, right? Ready, ready to move on? All right. Suppose bhikkhus, that in the last month of the hot season, at high noon, a shimmering mirage appears. A man with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it. And it would appear to him to be void, hollow, and insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a mirage? So too, bhikkhus, whatever kind of perception there is, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a bhikkhu inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it. And it would appear to him to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in perception? All right. The mirage. You got it. I was just going to say, um, the thing you were saying a couple times before, i.e., whether I see it in my dream or I see it with my eyes, it's all... Mental, mental sense. Yeah, and the, the same thing being the mirage or something I actually do see. Mm-hmm. 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 The next one is going to be the planting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so before that, then let me ask this now. In every example, the Buddha always says, a man of good sight will see the foam or the bubble or the mirage. Mm. A good sight. Is that referring to a mind train in... Shamatha and Vipassana? What is the good side that? You know, there's a lot going on with this word investigate in Dharma, right? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I, it's funny, I just glossed over it. I mean, I understood it as being good sight, meaning not like good eyes, but somebody who thinks about it and is like, oh, if I think about it, there's no more, like, you know, we've all been driving on the road and seen the, the pool of water on the road. And then we get there and we see, oh, there's, there's no barrage there. So a person with good sight would see that there's no water there, right? Certainly somebody with bad sight would still see the water there, right? So that's, yeah, good question. I glossed right over it as just a, a reference to critical thinking in that way, I guess, yeah? Hmm. I have a question. The other two are... Observable stuff like the you know, phenomena that somebody took to a metaphor, like nature bubble, yep. the mirage 
is kind of a more like a concept. So I wonder if it's translating translation <coughs> kind of thing because the radish demology is coming one way from Islam they're saying Oh and the illusion idea of mirage, is it a Western idea that being used here? On that note, linguistically, yeah, you know, forget about mirage. The phenomena that they're talking about, though, in particular, hot day, high noon, we've, that experience is, is an optical illusion that it, it clearly goes back several thousand years in that regard. So the word mirage, how did it appear in this text? Oh, right. Yeah, I don't know what the original poly is, but they're clearly using the modern uh, uh, Arabic-based sort of idea, I guess. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. Question. So, is it correct when I say the eye itself comes in? So, when there are like stages, the eye comes in when there's like after perceptions as of conditioning. If you, if you if you want to really know, yeah. <laughs> Getting a little ahead of the game, but yeah, I will never. <laughs> no, the. Oh, I thought you were talking about this eye. No, 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 no. Oh, I mean both. It's true of yes. both. But, yeah. Yes. Part, yeah, yeah. Part of, part of, the, part of the grand perception is that it was me who heard the siren. Right. Yeah, but there's, you know, that can be formed without the um, small self. That can be formed without sensation, right? That can mm -hmm. be formed without perception, not, not I, but self. Mm -hmm. I can perceive without the idea of an I, mm -hmm. right? But there can't be conditioning without the sense of a... Yes, so, but hold off, we're not to the conditioning yet, right? We're still in our mirage, and I still want to clarify what they mean by mirage with the relationship to perception. So hold off on that conditioning. Yep. So they're saying that perception is uh, is not it's, it's it's not there. You're saying something that actually isn't there. Yeah, and that's that's what they're going for. Like that's the exact point. That the nature of all perception <laughs> is, is something that is not actually there. Yeah, and so just really quickly, I want to remind everybody that this perception, samnya, associative nya, associative thought thought patterns. That this looks like that, so they're the same thing. That's sort of samya, right? Remember in the past that I talked about how the perception process works via characteristics, lakshana, this idea of qualities or characteristics. And I've used our little green pillow that's on the table as an example. And I've talked about how the greenness of the little pillow that we think is owned or possessed by the pillow is a property or quality of the pillow that I'm just kicking back and perceiving. If we really dig deep into how the rods and the cones of the eye work and how color perception works, we realize that the greenness is actually dependently arisen between my unique eyes and some maybe information, let's just call it that for now. And when the two get together, there emerges in my mind the green pillow. But what that means is that the green pillow is not out there. The greenness is like a mirage. I'm, I've mistaken it. I've gotten it. It looks like water. Look, it's shimmering. It has the 
qualities or characteristics of a pool of water. I get closer, I'm like, oh, wow, where did that pool of water go? I could have sworn. The idea is that all perception has that nature because it's all thinking that the qualities are by the object over there in the distance, the little pillow in the distance, the water in the distance. So that Lakshana game, the Lakshana game of perception is all like a mirage. I'm thinking too, like my experience of like mirages, it's like sort of unsettling when, when, you, when you're not sure that what you're saying is true or not. That, that, it's like naturally unsettling. I remember yeah. when the horizon was in the wrong place and like I could not get over it. I just, it was like... Yeah. Was Imagine if you're coming. thirsty. Yeah, but yeah. Right. Talk about unsettling, right? Yeah. You thought you were going to get a drink of water. But it, this is the Buddhist message, of course, is that we think we're going to get the happiness, the joy, the satisfaction, the pleasure from the mirages. And that's what the Buddha is saying is like, you'll never get satisfied from a mirage. Just it will never happen. Questions on the mirages of perception? It seems like there's a growing level of uh, the goon is in this. Uh, you know, what I'm trying to say is like, the, like the, the lump of foam, you can examine it. If you reached out and touched it, you would get, you, would, you could reach out and touch it, even yep. though there's sort of nothing there. Yep. The bubble, if you reach out and try to touch it, it will burst, like you cannot even touch it. Mm-hmm. An illusion. You can't even reach out. The reaching out makes it go away, sort of. So it's kind of getting more and more unreachable. Isn't it, though? Good. Good looking out, Gnome. Yeah, that very much. Very much. And again, always bring it back to the deeper Dharma lesson of attachment and suffering and this idea of reaching out for that which is never even there. Right? Whereas, yeah, form, sensations have a certain reality to them that have to sort of be dealt with. But the mirages, they're not real at all, right? We have our little mirage, or our little body of water. All right. Everybody ready? Yeah. <laughs> this, of course, was the... I, I really I feel bad now for anybody reading this sutra and not referring to this, because they are like plantains, right? So suppose bhikkhus that a man needing heartwood, seeking heartwood, wandering in search of heartwood, would take a sharp axe and enter a forest. And there he would see the trunk of a large plantain tree, straight, fresh, without a fruit bud core. He would cut it down at the root, cut off the crown, and unroll the coil. And as he unrolls the coil, he would not find even soft wood, let alone heartwood. A man with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it, and it would appear to him to be void, hollow, and insubstantial. For what substance could there be in the trunk of a plantain tree? So too, bhikkhus, whatever kind of Volitional formations, whatever form of conditioning there is, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a bhikkhu inspects them, ponders them, and carefully investigates them. As he investigates them, they appear to him to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be 
and conditioning. Right? So I don't know if you've all dealt with a necessary plantain tree, but you could also imagine any kind of one of those tropical plants and you're like, I got to build a house. I need some heartwood. I need some real strong wood. And you start unraveling these kind of more um, kind of rainforesty, and you realize that the way they grow is in these bark sheaths. And that you've, you're like, all right, let's get to this heartwood and start peeling back the layers of the bark wrapped around it. And you find out that in, apparently in this plantain, there's no core. It's, it's like celery. Yeah. Another example. Kind of idea. Yep. It's more like a grass. It's a monocot, and it's more like a grass. Like, think of grass like what? the celery. Grass. It is. Palms are distant cousins to um, grass. It's a colony of grasses. Yeah. There you go. So it speaks, yeah, so this idea, right? We don't have to get too into the science of it, right? But any thoughts on the relationship between this samskaric mental conditioning and this hollow plantain trunk tree? It seems the most substantial of all, and yet it's the most insubstantial. How so? Well, I don't know if it's how substantial. Well, you know, you think, oh, a tree. But remember, we're looking for heartwood, though. You're right, you're right. Then it's not there. there is yeah, no yeah, you're barking so up saying, the wrong tree. The wrong tree, but, but compared <laughs> to foam or bubbles or mirages, it seems really solid at first, but it's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, these, uh, I love the playing with the metaphor. That's what we're here to do. But to Nam's point, when you investigate yeah. conditioning under Vipassana, there's nothing there. The deeper you go. Layers of our past upon layers of our past rolled in together into what feels like a history of oneself. And useless. <laughs> Certainly not to be useless. You're trying to find something that you can use and there's nothing to use. This is what I mean by exploring these metaphors. Exactly. There's, there's deep stuff in these metaphors and that idea, yeah. And, and again, that's a really good way of looking at it, Brendan, which is like, go back to the, the whole metaphor, which is like, somebody needs heartwood. Like, that's what they're looking for is heartwood. And then they go after it here, right? And so the idea is, yeah, if you're going after the self, you're going after the core essence of a being. Well, let's work on, you know, on that one. The idea is, again, you'll just pull back these layers of ourself from our past, but no core that they make, Right? I'm going to jump ahead because I do want to read a little bit more from our other sutra, so we'll do the last one here. But but suppose bhikkhus, that a magician or a magician's apprentice would display a magical illusion at the crossroads. A man with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it, and it would appear to him to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a magical illusion? So too, bhikkhus, whatever kind of consciousness there is, whether past or future or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a bhikkhu inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it. And it would appear to him to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in consciousness? All right. Questions? The the uh, cro- the illusion at the crossroads, yeah, magical illusion at the crossroads. You that appears a lot in su- in suttas and sutras. 
And it seems to be referring to, I've, been, I, I've mentioned this before that I did a lot of my, uh, my doctoral research and stuff on magic and Buddhist monks as magicians. So I was very curious about that line that I would often see. And what it, it seems to be referring to is a type of um, kind of puppetry in a way where people would craft these, they would either look like animals or being and they would be kind of like, maybe through strings or something animated in some way. And so they would be like an illusion. Like imagine somebody putting on like a puppet show kind of a thing. And if you were so convinced by the illusion, right? Now, of course, in the modern world, we could just type virtual reality. Imagine at the crossroads, there's a virtual reality arcade, right? And so the idea of like, thinking that those virtual reality created things or any kind of illusion is real is like thinking any of the consciousness act, actions or activities are real in that sense. That in other words, what consciousness is, is closer to the hallucination, an illu- a total illusion, than it is to what you think is going on, which is just perceiving what's going on in front of me. Just perceptive organs, receiving information, right? All of this, and again, we haven't actually gotten to our original idea of the trans, translating, that, that our, our beings, not really the brain or whatever, but our, all of this, have these uh, greed, anger, and delusion problem. And so actually all the stimuli are being filtered through our greed, hatred, delusion, then through this whole process, and they, what winds up in front of us is an illusion. That's the idea of this final m- metaphor, that what we think we're conscious of is actually an illusion based on a mirage out of a plantain, or <laughs> an illusion out of a plantain, out of a mirage, from a bubble, out of some foam. That makes sense. Questions, ideas about the consciousness? Illusion, virtual reality, right? I think it's really like brilliant metaphor because the consciousness is so entertaining. Like, like you will go and like, oh, I spend two hundred dollars to go to Vegas to see a person being cut to two. Like, if you will be like, why would I go? I know it's not real, but I will go there <laughs> and rejoice in the <laughs> mess of it and kind of experience. That's that's what it does to us. It's a great example. Actually, that's a really, really great, um, uh, a great thinking about this metaphor, right? In, like I joked about, um, you know, the problem with the mirage, of course, is if you're thirsty, right? So, like, that's interesting. And what you brought up about that is very interesting, that the, that the magician at the crossroads, that's a, a spectacle, right? It's something to be looked at. I'm sure he had a donation basket out, and it was like, you know, so your idea of like entertainment, the illusion and entertainment, or again, virtual reality video game, <clears throat> right on. It's a desire. <laughs> wow. What? Hello. The guy's levitating. You see this even now uh, on the streets in Spain, <laughs> in Barcelona, where the guy's just yeah. sitting there, and all he's holding onto is a little cane. Well, it runs up his arm around his back <laughs> and onto a little stool thing that he's sitting on, yep. cross-legged, meditating. But it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's spectacle. Yeah, and it does speak to desire. Well, I'd like to do that. Yeah, right. Kind of a thing. You see some guy like 
burdened with problems on the side of the road. He's not very good to look at. I got my own problems. But if somebody's floating, it's like, oh, I'd like to float. <laughs> <laughs> right? It also reminds us that there is no form too. Like that comes back to all of these have that at the that what you know the bubble. What's inside of a bubble? Not a, the bubble's actually the the exterior, like our plantain. All of that. Yeah, so the nothingness, you know, it says that, the void, hollowness, is definitely the through, a through line. But in, as far as this Buddha Dharma working with similes and metaphors go, I love this conversation that, about the uniqueness of these metaphors. Yes, they're all hollow and insubstantial, but they're also speaking about desires or craving or fleeting sensations, Right? Um, just to let you know, uh, this does, of course, turn into a old-school Theravada text because it goes on to say, seeing things thusly, bhikkhus, the instructed noble disciple experiences revulsion towards form, revulsion towards feelings, revulsion towards perception, revulsion towards conditioning, and revulsion towards consciousness. And so the Theravada move is, is that, oh, well then, to turn entirely away from that which is hollow, empty, illusory, and all of that. Whereas the Mahayana, based on the sutra that we've been reading, is actually kind of moving towards them rather than away from them in that way. All right. Yeah? So, of course... So I also had mentioned that, that in this sutra, in particular, uh, that beautiful line... Where is it? If one attains this supreme understanding that the five skandhas are like that, then she's liberated. And she actually always has been. That is a, a very interesting little line that is definitely what puts this over in the Mahayana camp. This idea of already enlightened, but it's these kind of hang-ups that are just keeping us from realizing that kind of a thing. Um, but also, um, again, I'm not going to go backwards... But this idea that the three kleshas, the three defilements, that those are the nature of Buddhahood, which the sutra says, that th those are the nature of Buddhahood, I mentioned that it's lines like that in sutras like this that in 100, 200 years would give way to Vajrayana, where they, not only are they like, whoa, wow, this is like Buddhahood, but it's like, look, Buddhahood! <laughs> Let's go into our anger, into our greed to find Buddhahood. And it's, you know, that's a very delicate thing to do, the Vajrayana path, because it's not about indulgence or anything like that. But yes, that's where it comes from. Or that's, yeah. Okay, so let's do a little more of our other sutra. So uh, just so I don't forget to say it, though, please recognize that anybody... Whoever read a sutra like this and were like, oh, what's Manjushri smoking with his, uh, you know, it's a foam or a bubble. No, no, no. It's as old as it gets. It just sounds a little weird because they apparently think you've read that. And so when they say plantains, you're like, yeah, that's what the Buddha said too. Right? But you think Manjushri's out there because he's talking about that. Right? So there are one, two, three, four ways all basically the same, but articulated four ways to transcend the mundane world. The first is to view the five skandhas, the five aggregates, as being like foam, bubble, plantain, mirage, and illusion, right? That furthermore, Shibuti, 
The basic nature of the five aggregates is emptiness. If that nature is emptiness, there is neither I nor mine. If there is neither I nor mine, there is no duality. If there is no duality, there is neither grasping nor abandoning. If there is neither grasping nor abandoning, there is no attachment. Thus, free of attachment, one transcends transcends the mundane world. So this is definitely where we're moving into some deep Mahayana territory. Right? But this idea that within this realm of the skandhas, and then even deeper within this realm of hollow emptiness, there is no I, and therefore there cannot be an owner, a mine, and if there's no I in mind, there's no duality. Now, of course, what's fascinating about this is that he's saying that if there is no duality, there's, there's nothing to grasp, nor nothing to let go of. There's nobody to be grasping to anything, right? If there's no duality, there's neither grasping nor abandoning, and if there's neither grasping nor abandoning, there's no attachment. Thus, free of attachment, one transcends the Monday morning. But if I find it funny that the last sentence goes back to one transcends the mundane. Mm. In a way, like it says, there's no self, there's no grasping, there's no everything, mm-hmm. there's nothing. And then it says, and the one transcends, transcends the mundane. I mean, there is no. According to this text, there's no one who even consents. Mhm. Absolutely. It knows that. It knows that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not. Yeah, again, where we need to use language, we're telling a story here. So there's characters, but it knows that they're all, you know, dependently originated phantasms, right? <laughs> but I just wanted to to point out this sort of subtle difference on that note between. Um, kind of there, the older school where attachment was a big problem and one had to like work really hard at this process. This is where you get the meaning of Vajra immediate because if one realizes, oh, there's nobody, grasp, there's nothing to be grasped, the attachment ends immediately, instantly. That's Vajra. That's very Mahayana when it's like that versus lifetime after lifetime of working on this, right? Yeah. It also seems effortless. Doesn't it, though? Right. You want to transcend the mundane world yet a new way? Yes. <laughs> Furthermore, Shibuti, the five aggregates belong to the realm of causes and conditions, the conditional realm. If they belong to causes and conditions, they do not belong to oneself or to the other. If they do not belong to oneself or to others, they have no owner. If they have no owner, there is no one who grasps them. If there is no grasping, there is no contention. And non-contention is the practice of religious devotees. Just as a hand moving in empty space touches no object and meets no obstacle, so the bodhisattva who practices the equality of emptiness transcends the mundane world. (laughs) On this one, really quickly, I wanted to remind us of my friend in the shadow, right? So everybody remember my friend the shadow on the wall, right? 
So uh, I think it was last week, I went through the nature of the shadow on the wall, and I asked you, is that shadow on the wall the same as or different than my finger? And you see the problem that if they're one, then then, then I'm a I'm a getting bigger. I'm, I'm right. <laughs> but if they're two, then all of a sudden this thing on the wall gets a little weird about its nature, right? And then I flipped it on you and I said, okay, you couldn't have the shadow without my finger, right? No finger, no shadow. But you also, if I were to cut the lights, you would have no shadow. So now all of a sudden, that thing on the wall, that thing on the wall, has this really deep, intimate relationship with the light. It's kind of made of light, sort of, kind of, right? So is the shadow one with the light, or are they different? And then the third element, of course, is the wall, is that if there were no wall there to, quote, catch the shadow, You'd have no shadow. And so, is the shadow part of the wall? Part of the light? Part of my finger? Or, or, does it have no owner? Right? I'm just trying to tie that together, right? So this idea that... Um, uh, the five aggregates belong to causes and conditions, right? And if they belong to causes and conditions, they do not belong to oneself or to others. The shadow does not belong to itself. The shadow will never just up and walk away, right? It's never going to be like, psych, I'm out of here. It's always going to be part of this dependently originated situation, right? So, if it belongs to causes and conditions. It does not belong to itself or to others. That's what I was pointing out. It has this intimate relationship, but they're distinguishable, right? If they do not belong to oneself or to others, they have no owner. There's no owner of the shadow. It's a dependently originated conditional object, right? If they have no owner, there is no one who grasps them. If there is no grasping, there is no contention. And non-contention is the practice of religious devotees. So instead of, in, in case this got too out there, like whoa, nature of reality, bubbles and emptiness, they're talking about people becoming assholes over their clinging to stuff. That the only way you wind up fist to fist, the only way you wind up at odds with anybody over anything is because of grasping. I don't care if you're grasping after the oil in the land, you're grasping after air rights, grasping after this, grasping after that. The only way this happens is because of people doing this. And it's funny because they're grabbing mirages, illusions, foam, bubbles, and plantains. But they don't know it, so they get really invested in this stuff. And the more invested they are, the bigger the guns get to protect it. You see this relationship between grasping and contention? And non-contention is the practice of religious devotees. Just as a hand moving in empty space touches no object and meets no obstacle, 
So the bodhisattvas who practice the equality of emptiness transcend the mundane world. Moreover, Shibuti, because all the elements of the five aggregates are equal in the realm of Dharma, in the Dharma Datu, all things are equal. There are no realms of form, formlessness, and desire. If there are no realms of desire, form, and formlessness, there are no elements of earth, water, fire, or air. There is no ego, no sentient being, no life, no realm of desire, form, and formlessness, no realm of the conditioned, no realm of the unconditioned, no realm of samsara, no realm of nirvana. When bodhisattvas enter such a domain free of all distinctions, they do not abide in anything, though they remain in the midst of worldly beings. If they do not abide in anything, a bodhisattva transcends the mundane world. When this dharma of transcending the world was explained, 200 monks became detached from all dharmas, ended all their defilements, and became liberated in mind. One by one, they took off their upper garments to offer them to Manjushri, saying, any person who does not have faith in or understand this doctrine will achieve nothing and realize nothing. Then Shibuti asked these other monks, elders, have you ever achieved or realized anything? The monks all replied, only presumptuous people will claim they have achieved or realized something. <laughs> to a humble religious devotee, nothing is achieved or realized. How then would such a person think of saying to himself, this I have achieved, this I have realized? If such an idea occurs to him, then it is a demon's deed. Note that. Shibuti asked, Elders, according to your understanding, what achievement and realization cause you to say so? The monks replied, Only the Buddha, the world-honored one, and Manjushri know of our achievements and realizations. Most virtuous one, our understanding is this. Those who do not fully know the nature of suffering, yet claim that suffering should be comprehended, are presumptuous. Likewise, if they claim that the cause of suffering should be eradicated or that the cessation of suffering should be realized and that the path leading to the cessation of suffering should be followed, they are presumptuous. Presumptuous also are those who do not really know the nature of suffering, its cause, its cessation, or the path leading to its cessation, but claim that they know suffering, have eradicated the cause of suffering, have realized the cessation of suffering, and have followed the path leading to the cessation of suffering. What is the nature of suffering? It is the very nature of non-arising. The same is true concerning the characteristics of the cause of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the path leading to the cessation of suffering. The nature of non-arising is signless and unattainable. In it, there is no suffering to be known, no cause of suffering to be eradicated, no cessation of suffering to be realized, and no path leading to the cessation of suffering to be followed. Those who are not frightened, terrified, or awe-stricken upon hearing these noble truths 
are not presumptuous. Those who are frightened and terrified, those are the presumptuous ones. Thereupon, the world on one praised the monks, saying, Well said, well said. He told Shibuti, These monks heard Manjushriya explain this profound dharma during the era of the former Buddha Kashyapya. And because they have practiced this profound dharma before, they are now able to fully, they are now able to full, they are now able to follow it and understand it immediately. Similarly, all those who hear, believe, and understand this profound teaching in my era will be among the assembly of Maitreya Buddha, the future Buddha. Then the god Saguna. That's right. This sutra is called the Deva Saguna Sutra. He's the star of the show. He appears in the first sentence in which it says, this is who was there. And now he makes his appearance. Then the god Saguna said to Manjushri, Virtuous one, you have repeatedly taught the Dharma in this world. Now we beg you to go to the Tushita heaven. For a long time, the gods there have also been planting many good roots. They will be able to understand the Dharma if they hear it. However, because they are attached to the pleasures of their heavenly realm, they cannot leave their heaven and come down to the Buddha to hear his dharma, and consequently they suffer a great loss. Manjushri immediately performed a miraculous feat that caused the god Suguna and all others in the assembly to believe that they had arrived at the palace of the Tushita heaven. There they saw gardens, woods, magnificent palaces, and mansions with sumptuous tiers of railings and windows, high and spacious 20-story towers with jeweled nets and curtains, celestial flowers covering the ground, various wonderful birds hovering in flocks and warbling, and celestial maidens in the act scattering flowers of the coral tree, singing verses in chorus and playing merrily. Seeing all this, the god Saguna said to Manjushri, This is extraordinary, Manjushri, how we have arrived so quickly at the palace of the Tushita heaven to see the gardens and the gods here. Manjushri, will you please teach us the Dharma? Elder Shibuti told Saguna, Son of heaven, you did not leave the assembly or go anywhere. It is Manjushri's miraculous feat that causes you to see yourself in the palace of the Tushita heaven. The god Saguna said to the Buddha, How rare, world-honored one! Manjushri has such a command of samadhi and of miraculous powers that in an instant he has caused this entire assembly to appear to be in the palace of the Tushita heaven. The Buddha said, Son of heaven, is this your understanding of Manjushri's miraculous power? As I understand it, if Manjushri wishes, he can gather all the merits and magnificent attributes of all Buddha lands as numerous as the sands of the Ganges River and cause them to appear in one single Buddha land. He can, with one fingertip, lift up the Buddha lands below ours which are as numerous as the sands of the Ganges River, and put them in the empty space on top of the Buddha lands above ours, which are also as numerous as the sands of the Ganges River. He can put all the water of the four great oceans of all Buddha lands into a single pore of his body, 
without making the aquatic beings in it feel crowded or removing from, from them the seas. He can put all the majestic Mount Sumerus of all the worlds into a mustard seed. Yet the gods on, on the mountains in all those worlds will feel that they are still living in their own palaces. He can place all sentient beings of the five planes of existence of all Buddha lands on the palm of his hand and cause them to see all kinds of exquisite material objects, such as those available in delightful, magnificent countries. He can gather all the fires of all the worlds into a piece of cotton. He can use a spot as small as a pore to eclipse completely every sun and every moon and every Buddha land. In short, he can accomplish whatever he wishes to do. At that time, Papian, Mara, the evil one, transformed himself into a monk and said to the Buddha, World Honor One, we wish to see Manjushri perform such miraculous feats right now. What's the sense of saying such absurd things which nobody in the world can believe? The World Honor One told Manjushri, you should manifest your miraculous powers right now before this assembly. Thereupon, without rising from his seat, Manjushri entered into the samadhi of perfect mental freedom in glorifying all dharmas and demonstrated all the miraculous feats just described by the Buddha. Seeing this, Papian, the evil one, the members of the assembly, and the god Saguna all applauded these unprecedented deeds, saying, Wonderful, wonderful! Because of the appearance of the Buddha in this world, we now have this bodhisattva who can perform such miraculous feats and open a Dharma door for the world. Thereupon, the evil one, inspired by Manjushri's awesome power, said, World honored one, how wonderful it is that Manjushri possesses such great miraculous power. And the members of this assembly who now understand and have faith in the Dharma through his demonstration of miraculous feats are also marvelous. World Honored One, even if there were as many demons as the sands of the Ganges River, they would not be able to hinder these good men and these good women who understand and believe this Dharma. I, Papian, the evil one, have always sought opportunities to oppose the Buddha and to create turmoil among sentient beings. But now I vow that, from this day on, I will no never go nearer than 100 leagues away from the place where this doctrine prevails, or where people have faith in it, understand it, cherish it, receive, write, recite, receive, read, recite, and teach it. However, world honor one, some of my kindred are determined to distract the devotees' minds so as to destroy the Dharma of the Tathagata. I will therefore chant the following Dharami so that devotees can vanquish these demons. If good men or good women read, write, and recite this incantation or teach it to others, the celestial demons will, benef will benefit and will in return Cause the teachers of this dharma to feel joyful in body and mind, to practice vigorously, to possess unimpeded eloquence and dharamis, and not to lack services, 
food and drink, clothing, bedding, or medicine. Then Papian uttered this incantation. Yeah, I'm not going to butcher this. I'm not going to butcher it. Yeah, it is a little paragraph of Sanskrit. Tadyatha, Mala, Vimalas. Yeah, then it starts falling apart on me. So I'm not going to butcher that, but there's the Dharani. Then Papian said to Whirlon, said, Whirlon one, if good men or good women accept this Dharani wholeheartedly and chant it with concentration, they will be protected by gods, nagas, yakshas, gandharavas, asuras, garudas, kimnaras, and maharagas, and no evil demons will be able to take advantage of them. When Papian the evil one spoke this incantation, quakes of the six kinds occurred in the billionfold world universe. The world honored one then told Papian the evil one, wonderful, wonderful. You should know that your eloquence is a manifestation of Manjushri's miraculous power. When Manjushri was revealing his miraculous power and Papian the demon was chanting the Dharani, 32,000 gods resolved to attain supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment. And when the Buddha finished teaching this sutra, the god Saguna, Elder Ananda, and all the humans, gods, dragons, Gandharavas, Asuras, and so forth were jubilant upon hearing what the Buddha had taught. The end. Mantra? I can't. I'll leave it up here to read. Was the Jirana, uh, was that the mantra? The, ma- the mantra is Tadyatha Amala Vimala Sti. So it's quite the, long. It's quite long. Yeah, yeah. So I'll leave it up here for everyone to look at it, right there. Questions about that end there? <laughs> There's a lot going on there. <laughs> Transportation to the Tushita Heaven. By the way, if you don't know, that's Maitreya. They said that anybody who had faith in this doctrine would be guaranteed to be going to Maitreya, would be among the assembly of Maitreya, the future Buddha, who happens to be currently in the Tushita heaven. Right? And so Saguna, who is also apparently from Tushita, right? Because Saguna's like, hey, everybody up there is all wrapped up in their pleasures of their heavenly realm. Let's go teach them. And then, of course, everybody thinks they're in the Tushita heaven, but they're not. But that should be right in line with everything we've been talking about tonight, right? On that note, let me just to make sure I get make this clear, right? So this kind of goes to the Vajrayana thing I mentioned. So there's this beautiful. Um, everybody's probably heard this word. Uh, Dukkha, dukkha, suffering, right? But do you know about sukha? Sukha means bliss. And sukha is the exact opposite of dukkha. And actually in Sanskrit, they even have this compound sukha dukkha. And the word sukha dukkha is sort of the entire range of possible human experience from the worst suffering to the greatest bliss and everything in between, sukha dukkha, right? And so the idea of the suffering of this angst, 
anxiety, suffering, right? The idea is that that's sort of based on our attachments, our clinging. This is the noble truth, that that's suffering, that dukkha is caused by clinging and attachment, right? And so Buddhism, being Buddhism, is ultimately striving for a kind of equanimity, like, so actually neither dukkha nor sukkha, sort of literally neither nor in between in a way, all right? So that's sort of the, 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 the main objective of Buddhism is to arrive at this contentment, which is a middle zone, middle, the middle path. But something that's important to note about this, and it's where this kind of pure land aspect at the end, where we get transported to a heavenly realm and everything's beautiful and all of that, I want to give you my two bit, my two cents on what I think is going on there, especially in a sutra like this. They're saying that our perceptive organs and the way perception works, totally illusory, mirage, bubbles and foam, all of that, right? So the things that you think are going on, the troubles you have that you think are really real, this is saying they're all totally illusory. They're troubles in your mind. There's no trouble, but your clinging to outcomes or whatever it is, is the cause of the suffering, right? So again, one goal is to achieve this equanimous place, but what the pure land, a sutra like this is trying to, or what I think it's actually trying to encourage you to think about is that the bad time you're having and the suffering and the anxiety is all you're doing, and you could actually completely flip it and be in the Sukhavati Vyuha. You could be in Blissville. As much as you're in Dukaville, you could be in Sukhaville. It works the same way. So the mirage, we could mirage it into a palace. We could mirage it into, you name it. There's nothing within the, especially within the Buddhist worldview, there's nothing prohibiting it. And so part of the Pure Land, like, practice or mode of, of doing Buddhism is flipping it, totally flipping it. And, the, and the, this also kind of leads into Vajrayana in that way, where, you know, they, they talk about sort of, well, yeah, I don't want to get too into it, but it is this idea of, yeah, the ultimate goal will be to arrive at some peaceful, equanimous place, but if it will help you get there, you could push this baby all the way to the other direction and put yourself in Blissville and then work your way back to equanimity. So this is meant to be this last bit about everybody being like, wow, this is great. And then being like, you didn't go anywhere. That's the message in it, is that if you're sitting in some situation and you're like, this is hell on earth, just know that it's your interpretation that's doing that. And you have it entirely within your being to flip it. And it's not hell on earth, heaven on earth. Just like that. That's... The message. Yeah. It seems kind of parallel to the way the dhyanas are working, where you go like all to bliss and happiness, and then it kind of cranks back and back. Right? Oh, yep, yeah, sure, yeah. sure. You could look at that. Mm-hmm. 
which I'm always advocating, like I did tonight, that the old school and the new school are totally right there, you know, and especially with the Manjushri explaining these five similes of this. And when you hear the Buddha do it, Manjushri is just reminding everybody. Again, this is not new. I even thought it was new until a few days ago. I, did, I had never read that. I didn't know that those, parable, those similes were in the old school. On that note, by the way, I just want to plant this seed. We're, we're out of, basically out of time. Uh, foam, bubbles, plantains, mirages, and illusions as referring to the five skandhas. And that's, of course, true from our little lump of foam, right? The Vajra Sutra, the Diamond Sutra, is not talking about the skandhas. And I don't know what they're talking about yet. There are six of them, though, so I assume they're talking about the six sense bases, but I don't know. But interestingly, this is that, uh, thus should the world be seen. A star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, the flickering of a lamp, a phantom, and a dream. That's from the Sanskrit. The Chinese, Kumar Jivas, has that all of this world should be seen as being like a dream, an illusion, a bubble, a shadow, like dew and like lightning. Lightning speaks to that, but again, I, I want to find now the original sutra that talks about where these similes come from, because I believe it's out there now, right? But these are slightly different except for the bubble, Right? Except for the bubble, they're different. And so they're obviously talking about the same idea of the empty, hollow nature of these things, the impermanent, fleeting nature of these things. Uh, but the, the Vajra Sutra, we have work to do, folks. So, right. on that note. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being here. So happy to share.